So I learned a very important lesson my sophomore year of high school at the homecoming dance. The weeks leading up to homecoming are fraught, right? You want to have someone to go with. Ideally, you want that someone to be someone that you really want to go with. That year, I didn't have that kind of somebody, but since it was preferable to go with someone rather than go alone, I asked a girl named Cindy. Names have been changed in order to protect the innocent in this story. <laughs> it was clear to me that Cindy and I were only going as friends, as in there was no romantic interest. We just needed a somebody to go to the dance with. I was pretty oblivious to social situations then, sometimes even now, but I couldn't tell you if she was really interested in being just friends or if she was interested in it turning into something more. But to me, that status was clear and firm, which meant, as I understood it, there were no obligations on either one of us other than meeting ahead of time and showing up together. You know, pictures, we show up together, that's it. But as, as I discovered, there was at least one more obligation. My mom had asked me if I needed to order a corsage for Cindy, and I assured her that I did not. We were just going as friends. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you still need to get your data corsage even when you're going just as friends. I learned this at a moment far too late when we were gathered for pictures ahead of time, and she very carefully pinned that boutonniere on my dress shirt with her wrists entirely unadorned by flowers of any kind. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I accept that. Even though we were just friends, I owed her something, and my ignorance of the obligation didn't change that fact. The fact that I didn't think I owed her something didn't change that I, in fact, owed her something. I had an obligation. So the question I want to ask this morning is, what do we owe each other? Where does my responsibility to you start and end, and what does it look like? Not knowing the obligation, again, doesn't free us from it. So we're going to step back and think about this, looking at our texts, trying to understand what we owe each other before we go to get homecoming pictures, metaphorically speaking. We're going to start and we're going to talk about the actions we owe each other and then we're going to talk about the internal posture we need in order to be able to take those actions. I think deep down we want to believe that we don't owe anyone anything. That anything we do for someone else is charity. Right? Everyone's an isolated unit and when you do a nice thing for someone else, that's you going above and beyond because no one has a responsibility for anyone else. Everyone's here on their own. But we're going to start with our reading from Matthew. Sometimes this passage gets framed as Jesus explaining how to get recompense, how to get someone to apologize when they wrong you. So if someone sins against you, this is how you go and get what you deserve and you properly ensure that they're disciplined. You might hear this passage and say and hear that it's sometimes called a passage about church discipline. But there's a little line that I think shifts our perspective just just a bit. Jesus here says that if they listen to you, you have regained that one. It doesn't say if they listen to you, you've received justice. It doesn't say if they listen to you, they've been properly disciplined. The goal in all of this is to gain them back. It may seem like splitting hairs, but reconciliation is not the same thing as discipline. Being reconciled to someone else isn't the same as getting what you deserve. Because just before this, Jesus spoke about God chasing after lost sheep. And after that, he taught his disciples that they shouldn't forgive only seven times, but 70 times seven times. That is a limitless number of times. And when you put that all together, 
you start to see one answer to this morning's question. What do we owe each other? According to our readings, we owe each other reconciliation. We owe each other the desire for lost sheep to be returned to the sheepfold. We owe each other a desire to forgive. We owe each other more than I'm going to set up some hoops and you have to jump through them to get right by me. If someone sins against you, Jesus doesn't say if someone sins against you, if you feel like it. He says if someone sins against you, go to them. Jesus is suggesting that we owe them the first step, going to them so that they might listen to us, to hear us, and to be reconciled to us. <laughs> oh, is that hard? <laughs> Reconciliation, yes, it requires work on the offending party, but it requires a lot of work from the offended person as well. I can think right now of folks who have hurt me, who have done me serious damage, and for many of them, I don't want them to come to me to work things out. I don't want to face the work of what happened. I don't want to have to work through it. I don't want to have to put in the work to reconcile and be reconciled to someone else. And of course, by bringing others in, right, if it doesn't work one-on-one, -on -one, you bring two more people. But that shows a level of vulnerability because what happens when you bring those outside observers in and they say, well, what about you? <laughs> what did you do in this? In the normal course of the hurts and pains that come with being in relationship with other humans, your hands probably aren't clean. Humility is required when reconciling. Now, as a sort of side note, we should mention that there are limits, right? What Jesus says in Matthew 18 does eventually come to a breaking point, that when the person refuses to listen to individuals, groups, and the whole community, there is a fracture in the relationship. This passage doesn't leave out the possibility of church discipline, because sometimes people are confronted with what they've done and they do not acknowledge it. They do not take ownership. This passage isn't calling us to be doormats. Sometimes we hear this and we say, oh, we just need to look at every sin against us and say, no problem. No problem isn't forgiveness. No problem is I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> Pretending like the hurt doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't tell us to act as if the offense didn't happen. He places in front of us the importance of reconciliation as opposed to ignoring the issue. And there's also limits to the kinds of reconciliation that can happen with this exact and particular list of sets. We need to let wisdom inform our reading and application of scripture because unfortunately, very often, Matthew 18 is used by people in authority to push back against accusations of abuse. I'm talking specifically, there are pastors who have hurt those in their flocks who will hide behind Matthew 18 and say that victims of emotional, spiritual, or even physical abuse did not come directly to them, or they didn't do it with two or three witnesses. There's a lot to be said here. There's a whole sermon about abuse in the church, but I'm going to limit it to this. The steps in Matthew 18 don't apply to every situation. If someone's burned down your house, you are not first required to go to them one-on-one -on -one and talk about the offense. You're allowed to go to the police. <laughs> and when we're talking about an abuse of power, especially abuse of power in churches, I do not believe that God asks victims to place themselves in vulnerable positions again just to seek reconciliation. There are other channels. Let's get real particular. If I've hurt you in any way and you do not feel comfortable coming to me directly, you bring it to Father Dan or you bring it to the bishop. If Dan has hurt you in any way and you do not feel comfortable talking to him directly, you talk to the bishop or another member of the clergy who will then take it to the bishop. 
That's not tattling, that's not cowardice. When we put on these collars, we show that we're under authority. And the authority structure is how we deal with shepherds who intentionally or unintentionally harm the sheep. It doesn't mean there's not reconciliation involved. It doesn't mean that, that everything's broken down. But reconciliation looks different in different scenarios. And I want to be the first to say, people in my position, people in clergy roles, have too often demanded that the sheep come to their shepherds as if, as if there's no dynamic there that needs to be dealt with. All right? Church discipline happens different for pastors. And that's part of the burden, that's part of the responsibility that we bear by taking on these collars. So abuse of power and violent crimes aren't in the scope of Matthew 18. But the ultimate intent for reconciliation applies anyways. And then there's, there's more that we owe to each other than just responding when we hurt. Because beyond the passive response to mistakes, we owe active concern for each other's well-being. So we saw it in our reading from Ezekiel, which has this incredibly colorful picture, right? Other prophets sometimes communicate using imagery, but Ezekiel's always like above and beyond. One author described him as like other prophets, only more so. <laughs> He's like the other prophets, just dialed up to 11. The message Ezekiel received was, was this. When a watchman sees danger coming, they are responsible for warning people, for sounding the trumpet. And when they've done their job, then their responsibility is on the people to heed the warning. But if a watchman doesn't say anything, then what happens to the people is held against that watchman for staying quiet. When Ezekiel writes about requiring blood, that's the same language used to describe what a family of someone who's been murdered is allowed to do, requiring blood. This is, this is the kind of language. Essentially, if you keep quiet, if danger is coming and you don't speak up, your inaction is morally equivalent to murder, according to Ezekiel. Your inaction to warn someone else of danger is equivalent to murdering them. It's equivalent to the sin that they commit, the calamity that befalls them. It's as if you did it to them. And Ezekiel must have been tired of giving warnings. <laughs> His ministry took place during the exile, so he's ministering to the people of God after the unthinkable had already happened. They were conquered and removed from their promised land. And you would think that that would put them in a place of humility. But we know the story, and if we're honest, we know calamity doesn't always put us in a place of humility. So what we read this morning came after seven years of prophetic ministry, seven years of calling God's people again and again to faithfulness. But what God is telling Ezekiel is that you still owe others a warning when you know danger is coming, even if you're tired. To do otherwise is the same as if you're the one who brought the calamity upon them. We owe each other an act of concern, warning each other as sin crouches at the door, speaking in humility the words that God may give us for each other. This doesn't mean we see cultural problems so we go out with bullhorns, right? This is about relationships. This is about how we deal with individuals. There's a role for prophetic voices, Ezekiel's one of them, but don't hear from my sermon that like every single problem you see, you need to start yelling about right now. Again, let's apply wisdom to this passage. But warnings are important. And there's more. It's not just warnings. Think of the list of things that Paul told the church in Rome to do. In fact, I'm going to steal a page from Deacon Joy's sermon last week and encourage you to open your Bibles up to Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Because this list 
This list could be a sermon series. There is so much here. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples while you look it up. You have to love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine that, trying to show honor and outdoing each other. It reminds me in, in Bible college, you quickly learn, no one said it out loud, but like, there was like, the only chivalry code that existed is that men always held the door open for women. And so if there's a girl like walking up to a door, like guys would like butt each other out of the way to open the door. It was just like, we all had to do that. We all had to hold the door open. It, it became a little bit silly at times. Women can open their own doors too. But the point being, I picture that. I picture, I want to honor you and I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to try and outdo in showing honor. Being zealous for each other, patient in suffering, persevering, persevering in prayer, contributing to each other, extending hospitality. Hospitality isn't just for those in the church. Hospitality is what you do for strangers. We've been asking what we do for each other, but the each other keeps growing. <laughs> it's relation to the outsider as well. Paul has a whole section on how you deal with the outsider. And it's in relation to that outsider that Paul goes on to issue what I think are the most challenging words for us, which is to bless those who persecute us, to not repay evil for evil, to feed hungry enemies, to never avenge ourselves. Paul is pulling language directly from the Sermon on the Mount when he does this. And sometimes when we hear about the Sermon on the Mount, we say like, it's an exaggeration, right? No one can really do those things. Jesus is just setting the high bar so we know that we need him. But Paul is doubling down. He's taking the hardest parts of the Sermon on the Mount and he's instructing the Romans to live it out. What do we owe each other? It seems like a whole lot. We owe each other active reconciliation not just waiting back for an apology, but actively looking to reconcile, open to the possibility that we're wrong too. We owe warnings about sin, lest we're held accountable for words from God that we did not give. We owe each other actively showing honor and affection, doing whatever we can to live in harmony with others, showing hospitality and love and extending charity to enemies and those who would persecute us and those who are persecuting us. Friends, this is not extra credit for the Christian life. This is how the Bible tells us we ought to be living if we say that we follow Jesus. That's a hard list. You can't white-knuckle your way to this kind of life, right? You can try your best, but you can't just force yourself to love in this kind of way. That's why just a few verses earlier in Romans 12, Paul says we have to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. When Paul says that when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, then we should be transformed by the renewal of our minds, this is what he means. This is what, we, we take that verse and we're like, yeah, renewal of my minds, and then we just kind of stop there because we want to define what the renewal of our mind looks like. We're like, yeah, I'll get to that. <laughs> Paul has some very specific examples of what it looks like. There are a bunch of verses about honoring each other's gifts in the church, and then there's this whole list and you can't simply just make yourself do it. It is only when we die to self and let Jesus work in and through us that we could possibly live this kind of life. I think it's interesting that Paul starts off the list with learning to love genuinely, unhypocritically. Learn to love in a way that is consistent. 
So we have to pursue not just a change in actions, but a change in heart as well, so that our love for others, our love for our enemies, isn't just a product of our own effort. It's not behavior modification. It flows from love. In the collect for this morning, um, we ask God for grace to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. As in, temptations that come from our own distorted desires, from the world around us, and from the enemy who seeks to destroy. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to name a few things that I think could be tempting us to abandon what we owe each other. To start, I think radical individualism is the water in which we swim. It's the air that we breathe. Individualism, the care for only self, drives much of what we do. In fact, it's, in some ways, it's baked into the country in which we live, right? There are wonderful gifts that the United States Constitution, when it was written, gave to the entire world with its emphasis on individual liberty. People have written extensively about how that's so important for us not to infringe on others. And yet, the shadow side of that is an anti-Christian notion that other people's problems are just that, other people's problems. This whole sermon, I've been talking about what we owe to each other, but we live in a society that's built on caring for self. We're not at risk at coming together to build a Tower of Babel because we're all too busy building our own little Towers of Babel. America's not going to build one Tower of Babel. It'll build 300 million of them. I'm too busy building the Tower of Andrew to worry about your tower. One of my favorite bands puts it this way. It was like the manifest destiny all over again, except instead of taking and consuming everything in their paths for God, they did so with the same fervor and sense of entitlement for their new God themselves. We're not just naturally tempted by it, we're consistently encouraged to do it. We live in a world of advertisements that continually bombard us with a picture of the good life, and the picture of the good life is you getting what you want, right? That's what we're encouraged to do. Self-help books, the entire industry in which we live, your career advice, you need to figure out what you need to do for you. That's the water in which we swim. And so if we want to learn to owe something to other people to fulfill our obligations, we need to begin with a shift in our understanding, recognizing we owe each other something in the first place. Personal freedom is not our highest good because we all belong to each other. Another danger is one that I've already highlighted from Romans. Do not repay evil for evil, Paul says. In fact, in these verses, Paul says it in four different ways to get it through our heads. Vengeance isn't for you to give it out. But man, do we want to dole out vengeance so badly? Or if we don't, we want to watch someone else do it, right? I may not be the one to do it, but I'll, I'll let someone else do it instead. We want payback. I once heard a film director whose movies are known for intense and gratuitous violence talk about two kinds of violence. He was, he was being interviewed about another one of his violent movies, and someone asked him, like, isn't that a bit much? And he basically said, there's two kinds of violence. There's the violence that's done to your main character, which is bad, and then there's the violence of their retribution, and that's movie violence, and that's fun, and that's cool, and that's really enjoyable, and kind of what you're waiting for. He, he said later in the interview that if at the end of his movie, which usually, his movies typically end with this crescendo and this climax of incredible displays of graphic violence, if the people aren't standing up and clapping, he hasn't done his job, right? 
Do not repay evil for evil. Never avenge yourself, Paul says. When our favorite movies depict the glory and thrill of violent revenge, why would we be surprised that we have a culture that revels in punching back? But I don't think the movies are the cause. <laughs> His movies aren't successful because we've been formed by them. His movies are successful because there's demand for it. This, this is a supply-demand issue, and he, he's providing, providing the supply because there's a lot of demand. We love retribution. His movies are an accurate reflection of our own desires. We consume them because they're what we want. And the problem is closer than we think. Russell Moore, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, has written a book about a shift he's seen in evangelical culture. And here's what he said in one interview. It's an interview, so it's a little bit, the language is a little bit uh, flowy here. But he said, what he wrote was the result of having multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount, parenthetically in their preaching, turn the other cheek, and have someone come up and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And when we get to a point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive, subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. His anecdotal response is anecdotal, but those of us in ministry who have peers in ministry hear it all the time. It's a common refrain. This is nothing short than a crisis in the church. When we hear the teachings of Jesus and we refuse to live them out because they don't work, because we think Jesus is weak, we have problems. That's what the Romans said. <laughs> How can you worship this crucified God? Why do you put a cross in the front of your church? That's where losers go. And so if you think the teachings of Jesus are weakness, you've lost the plot. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can have the mind of Christ. That's the only way I think we can change so we can fulfill the obligations we have to each other and to our neighbors. We need to pray for the heart of God. We can fake it until we make it and we can build habits. And I could give you all kinds of tips and tools and steps of how to develop this, but loving others the way God does requires conversion. Now you might say, <laughs> God's desire is for us to sit back so he can dole out the punishment. After all, we're called to feed our enemies because it's heaping burning coals on their heads. How many times have you done that? Have you done a nice thing for someone but thought in your head, that'll get them? This is like heaping burning coals on their head. Let, let's take a step back and let's do a little, a little uh, active lesson on how to read the Bible. If we're looking at Romans 12, context is key, and, and we have to understand a verse based on the verses around it. So think about all those things that Paul listed about how we act towards our enemies. Blessing those who persecute. Don't repay evil for evil. Feeding and giving water. I'm not sure that feeding hungry people with an internal attitude of I'm putting, putting burning coals on your head matches with the rest of Paul's sentiment. But what do we do with it? Well, what if instead of thinking of burning coals like raining down fire, we thought about burning coals more like the one that was used to purify Isaiah's lips when he was in the presence of God? like the refiner's fire. What if by fulfilling what Paul and Jesus tell us we owe our enemies, that is loving them and praying for them, we're providing them an example of the way of the cross, which is how we and they can live abundant lives. Now we're doubling down. Now we love our enemies by saying, I'm gonna love you because that's the way to true life. 
Because Jesus showed us the way of true life. It's to lose yourself so that you might gain yourself. To die to self, pick up your cross, and follow him. And even though this hurts and it looks weak, this is what true life looks like. And so I will do that to you because I hope that you might repent and be transformed. Miroslav Volf, in his book, The End of Memory, explores our call and desire for reconciliation. He writes with this incredible openness about torture that he was subjected to while in the military, and how he strives to have an attitude of forgiveness towards his torturer in particular. He names him Captain G. Near the end of the book, a friend poses a question. Isn't it unjust for you to forgive? To have this attitude towards reconciliation before Captain G has even come to you? Well, he responds by saying this, has the wrongdoing then ceased to exist? No, it has not. But it owes any remaining potency only to the unwillingness of the wrongdoer to receive forgiveness, be transformed, and be reconciled to her victims and to God. When we offer forgiveness and when we don't curse those who persecute us and instead long for reconciliation first, the only power that the wrongdoing still has is when the person allows it to keep them away from a forgiving God. True reconciliation wouldn't ignore or blow past the real problems. It doesn't, again, no problem is not real reconciliation. But the desire to reconcile means the power of the offense, the power of the sin, is only to hold the offender back from their own transformation. When we're called to hate evil, we need to hate it the same way God hates it. Revenge keeps evil in circulation. But to end, I want to look at the last verses from Ezekiel, where we see what God's heart is like. So God's talked about the watchman and the watchman's responsibility, and then here's what he says. Now you mortals say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, our transgressions and our sins weigh upon us, and we waste away, we rot away because of them. How then can we live and say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want to rain fire and brimstone on the heads of the wicked. He wants them to turn and live to stop doing things that are destructive and harmful, and instead do good things that lead to abundant life. One of my favorite things I read all week in preparing for this sermon was this line, God's declarations of judgment are meant to be self-frustrating. His declarations of judgment are meant to be self-frustrating. They're not meant to just be the lead up to his wrath, the wind up before the pitch but to prompt the people to turn and live so he doesn't have to do it anyways. Think about the story of Jonah, right? Jonah doesn't want to preach because if he goes and tells the Ninevites what's going on, they're going to repent and God's going to be merciful and he doesn't want that for them. This is the heart of God, a love for every person and a desire for their good. Having the heart of God is to see danger and to warn people from entering into it to see breakdowns in relationship and desiring for reconciliation. He says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that they have the ministry of reconciliation. It's to see ourselves not as isolated units, but belonging to each other, giving of ourselves for each other, seeing enemies who hurt us and persecute us and saying, let me bless you. Think about it. At the end of Matthew 18, Jesus says, if they don't listen to the church, then, then let them be to you a Gentile or a tax collector. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? How did Jesus interact with those who were enemies of Israel? With incredible tenderness and love. 
Thanks be to God that that's how we approach his enemies, because that's how he saw us, that when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Friends, whatever steps we take, the best way for us to be transformed is to pray. As Paul said, be, be constant in prayer. May God give us his heart for each other, for our neighbor, and even and especially for our enemies. May he expand our vision of what is good to include not just good for us, but good for everyone around us. May he give us eyes to see the needs around us, to love others, to desire reconciliation. May he lead us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and bless those who persecute us. The love of God is stronger than our sin, and may God increase in us that love so we can fulfill what we owe each other. Amen.